Tell me another story, Jesus. You know, I, I as I was sitting this morning in my office thinking about what it would have been like to be able to sit around while Jesus was telling a story. I thought, man, that that would have just been so unbelievably awesome to be able to experience that. And I know that many people were had the opportunity to do that. We are in part three of our Tell Me Another Story, Jesus. And basically, we're talking about the idea of what a parable is. And in sharing that, I, I'm going to ask you, what is a parable? So if you didn't hear what it was the last two Sundays, listen now so that next Sunday, when I ask you the same question, you'll be able to answer it. So what is a parable? Thank you. And Jesus told a lot of those. He told a lot of parables. And a lot of times he told those parables so that the people who were really listening would understand, but those who aren't listening to him or don't care anything about what he has to say would not understand the parable. So over the next six weeks, you know, the, or six weeks total, we're going to be looking at the parables that Jesus told. That's why I call it, tell me another story, Jesus. I got a question to ask you. This may indict you, so you may not want to answer this question. Have any of you here ever been arrested for cutting the warning label off of your pillow or your mattress? <laughs> Has anybody here ever been arrested? I, I was just wondering. I, I, was, I was curious about that. Did you know that consumers can remove the tags? It's the manufacturers who cannot. They're the ones that would get arrested. I'd like to see them try, but well, maybe they would. I don't know. But, you know, most of us, most of us are pretty familiar with warning labels, aren't we? Um, it, it seems like almost everything has a warning label on it today. You know, I'm gonna, I wanna share some actual warning labels found on certain items that really make you question the intelligence of American consumers. The first one is this. On the coffee cup, the warning label says, caution, hot beverages are hot. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, on, it says uh, on this, it's a novelty rock garden set that, that's called the popcorn rocks. On, the warning label on it says, eating rocks may lead to broken teeth. Here's another one, a manual for a, a heated seat cushion. How many of you have heated seat cushions? Okay, well, the warning there says, do not use on eyes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. A, a string of Christmas lights, there's a warning label on it that says, for indoor or outdoor use. So I started thinking, well, what other use is there? You know, whether it's indoor or outdoor, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, so... <laughs> Here's another one. A Vidal, a Vidal, Vidal, I don't know, a Sassoon hair dryer. The warning label on it says, do not use while sleeping. 
This was one of my favorite ones here because I could see me doing this one. The label on an iron says, warning, never iron clothes while wearing them. <laughs> and I, I could see me doing that one. <laughs> the, op, the iPod shuffle warning label says, do not eat iPod shuffle. Maybe that warning should be on Tide Pods as well. <laughs> hey, that kind of rhymes, you know, Tide Pods, iPods, you know. The Nabisco Easy Spread Cheese. You know that Easy Spread Cheese? I love that stuff. Has this warning label. It says, for best results, remove the cap. (laughs) Auto Shield Sun Visor warning label. Says, do not drive with sunshade in place. And this is one of my favorite ones. How many of you have a Dremel rotary tool? Okay, so some of you do. The warning label on that says... This tool is not intended for use as a dental drill. <laughs> and you know, it kind of looks like it, doesn't it, Chad? It, it does kind of look like it. It looks kind of looks like a dental drill. <laughs> so I guess they want to put that on there. And this one, this one probably, I saved the best one for last because I think this is probably the best one of all. Warning label on a pair of Superman pajamas. Warning, this garment does not enable the wearer to fly. <laughs> Darn it, you know, darn it, I wish it would. So, you know, a warning label, however obvious the warning may be, is designed to keep us from harm. That's what it's for, you know. So on the Sunday before the crucifixion, Jesus was welcomed by the cheers of the people. And over the next few days, What he did was he taught openly in the temple courts. That's what he did. But everywhere he turned, there were some people that just really, they were getting at him, man. They were the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were always opposed to him. They challenged him. They would constantly plot against him. And so Jesus provides a sort of what I would call warning label in the form of a parable about a landowner and some tenant farmers. I want you to listen. You know, we're going to read this this morning, and, and it's from Luke chapter chapter 20, uh, verses 9 through 19. And this is what it says. Listen to Jesus' story as he shares this. He begins by saying, He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, He sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a, a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And he goes on to say, Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Wow. You know, when Jesus Jesus finished telling this parable, the Bible says in, in verse 19 there, that the teachers of the law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus at once because they knew that this story, this parable that he was telling was about them. They knew this. You know, so for, for many years, now these religious leaders had practiced this godless religion. And on Wednesday nights, we've been talking a little bit about these religious leaders, you know, the, and the Judaizers and the things that, that they do or, or the, the teachings you know, bringing circumcision into, um, the, from the old law into the, 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 the new law, the new covenant of grace. And so for many years now, these religious leaders had practiced a godless religion. Their rites, their rules, their, their rituals, uh, became a substitute for truly understanding and knowing God. You know, they weren't using the products for its intended purpose, but Jesus came to earth to show us what God was really like. That's why he came. He came to show us what God is like. And in this parable, I believe that Jesus reveals for us four what I'll call foundational aspects of the nature of God. Kind of like a a warning label for anyone who thinks that they don't need God in their life. It's a warning label. For those who don't think that they need God in their lives. First, Jesus reveals God's property. The first foundational aspect of the nature of God is God's property. What is God's property? Everything. He owns it all. God owns it all. At the very beginning of the parable, Jesus says in verse 9 there, says he, he went on to the to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. He he leased this this vineyard to the farmers. The man, of course, in this parable is God. God is the owner. Only God doesn't just own a little piece of the vineyard. He owns the whole countryside. He owns everything. Psalm 50, verse 10, says this. From the New Living Translation, it says, For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own a cattle on a thousand hills. You know, if you, if you, if you've ever heard David Ramsey, the, the financial guy that, that shares about, um, finances and things like that, David Ramsey says this. He says, he owns the hills too. Not only the cattle on a thousand hills, but he owns the hills too. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, it says, The earth belongs to God. Everything in all the world is His. Everything in all the world is His. In other words, this is His world. We're just living in it and caring to, for it. We're, we're, we're caretakers of it. We don't own anything 
because we're just the tenants. That's what we are. And do you know what else that means? It means from the moment that we set foot on this world, on this planet, we owe a debt to God. We owe a debt to God because we're living on his planet, we're breathing his air, we're eating his food. The clothes that are on your back are made from his cotton. The gas that's in your car is derived from his fossil fuels. They're his. You don't even own you. You don't own you. You know, as Carl Sagan once stated, he says, the the nitrogen in our DNA, the iron in your blood, the calcium in your teeth, the carbon in your genes were produced by the stars that God stretched across the cosmos. And not only that, but we don't even own our abilities. God gives us our abilities as well. God gives us our resources. God gives us our skills and talents. God gives us opportunities. God gives us life and strength and energy. God gives us our homes. He gives us our jobs. He gives us our families. So in other words... Sounds like we owe him everything we have and everything that we are. My life, my soul, my all belongs to him. Belongs to him. God is the owner. See, the tenants in in the parable, however, they didn't see it that way. When it came time to pay back a portion of the harvest to give God his due, they refused to do that. No way. They thought, this is our vineyard. This isn't your vineyard. This is ours. We till the soil. We tend the vines. We harvested the grapes. We don't owe you anything. And sadly... Many people go through life with that very same attitude towards God. Some would rather not even think about God or what he's done for them. You know, we we just go on our way, putting confidence in our own abilities to work out our our own destinies, our own desires. You know, and maybe we proudly say, it's my life and I'm going to live the way I want to live it. You know, when I was thinking about when I was writing this, I was thinking... That, that tune came to my mind. I don't know how many of you are thinking the same thing, but I wanted to break out in a Bon Jovi song right there. It's my life, it's now or never. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, we forget that we are just the tenants. A tenant is a person who occupies land rented from a landlord. We're just the tenants who live here in this world for a very short time. We're just, it's like a breath, you know, like a, like a mist and then we're gone. God owns the vineyard, everything it contains, the world and those who live in it. And, and you know what? Maybe you're thinking the same, same thing I am. Thankfully, thankfully he does. And thankfully God doesn't want to give up on us. Praise the Lord for that. You know, he, he gives us plenty of time and opportunity to change our hearts. That, that leads us to the second aspect of God's nature in this parable. And, it, it, and it's one that I f- find myself being short of, and that's patience. 
You know, the second foundational aspect of God's nature is God's patience. So as the story continues, Jesus says that the landowner sent three servants to collect the portion of produce that rightfully belonged to him. And each time, what did the tenants do? They beat the servants. He he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. They, they, each time they, they would beat the servants and they would send them away empty-handed. That's what they would do. Now, it's important to remember that this parable was given specifically for the religious leaders of Israel during Jesus' day. These messengers, therefore, represent the messengers, the servants that we're talking about here, who they represent is the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, God sent numerous prophets to Israel to warn them of the dangers of rejecting God's authority over their lives. So so most of the prophets were abused and hated when they were alive. Elijah was threatened by a wicked queen. Jeremiah was, was thrown into a pit to die. Remember Daniel when he faced the lion's den? You know, and Amos was scorned and ridiculed. You know, the, the, the messages of the prophets were, were never valued until after they died. You know, someone has once said this, and I don't know who said it, but someone said it. Prophets, poets, and pigs have one thing in common. They aren't truly appreciated until they're dead. But despite their miserable treatment, God continued to send his prophets, warning Israel to repent and return to God. That's what he did. God demonstrated what I would call surprising patience with them. You know, and, and I guess the question I have to say is this. Hasn't he done the same for you and for me? Hasn't he done that? Hasn't he done the same? You know, those times when you used his name only when you cussed, um, God could have blown up at you or he could have blown you up. <laughs> but he didn't. He was patient with you. Those thousands and thousands of sunsets that, that we never thanked him for, you know, he could have taken them away, but he didn't. And the reason being is because he was patient with you. Those Sundays when you strutted into the church to show off your new dress or your new suit, he, it's a wonder he didn't strike you naked. But thank God he didn't. Woo! Especially you, Dave. <laughs> I'm just joking. He was patient, not wishing that any of us would perish or die of exposure. <laughs> That's absolutely right. You know, God is so patient with us. All those times you, you, you spurned his affection, rejected his invitation, or accepted him with your lips, but when you walk out the doors, you deny him by your lifestyle. How many of us do that? You know, surely God has ample reason to unleash his anger on us, but he doesn't. Why? 
Because Second Peter, we, we talked about this last week. It says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some are, understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But it's because God is patient with you. We talked about that last week. You know, it was in the 19th century, before radio and television, people in America found entertainment by listening to orators. One of the most, I would say, infamous orators was a gifted atheist by the name of Robert Engersoll. Never heard of him, but Robert Engersoll. You know, he, he traveled around the country delivering eloquent speeches on the irrationality of believing in God. Of course, he's an atheist. You know, he was the Richard Dawkins of his generation. And if you remember who Richard Dawkins is, Richard Dawkins has been quoted as saying that God is a pernicious delusion. He's just this delusion that that's not real. One of Robert Ingersoll's most dramatic ploys was to stand on stage and to shake his fist at the heavens and say this. He said, if there is a God, I dare him to strike me dead in 10 seconds. Then he would slowly count to 10. Women would faint and, and God-fearing people would rush for, for the exit doors, fully expecting that God was going to send a fireball down and consume Robert Ingersoll. They'd be running for the doors. Of course, nothing happened. And after completing his count, Ingersoll challenged everyone in the audience to refute his logic. But you know what? It is reported that in one small Midwestern town, an old godly woman laughed out loud when he did that and said, said to him in front of everybody, Mr. Ingersoll, do you think you can exhaust God's wonderful patience in just 10 seconds? <laughs> well, I think this, this godly woman was spot on. You know, God's patience is so wonderful. You know, it, it's not going to run out in 10 seconds. It's not going to run out in 10 centuries. In other words, God isn't going to give up on you. That should be comforting. God is not going to give up on you. He understands your faults and your failings. You know, he's not only a God of second chances, but he is a God of third chances. He is a God of fourth chances. He's a God of fifth chances and so on and so forth. That's what God is. And he will give us every possible opportunity to repent and to return to him. Let's move on to the third aspect of God's nature. Because I think that this one shows how far God is willing to go. The third foundational aspect of God's nature is that God is persistent. God is persistent. You know, as the story continues, notice what it says. Even though his servants had been rejected and abused, and the owner of the vineyard takes an astonishing, extraordinary measures, in verse 13 there it says, Then the, then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. You know, despite all that happened, what happened there, knowing what happened to the many servants that, that came before his son, God still 
loves them because his great love, he, he cherishes them and he, he wants to send his son. He wants to send his son. You know, knowing what had happened to, to the many servants who came before him, God, because of his great love for every single one of us in this room, sent his cherished son to this earth. And, and you know, I don't know about you, but as I'm sitting there at communion time, I thought that Paul had a, an excellent communion meditation there. That was really great. And, you know, I, I started thinking about trying to comprehend all of that. And it, it's just, sometimes for me, it's just uncomprehensible. You know, there is only one God, and he has only one son. And he loves us so much that he sent his son to reconcile our debt with him. So what, what did we do? Did we, did we run out and meet God's son and, and fall at his feet and surrender? Well, no, like the, the vine growers in, in this parable, what happened was we crucified the son of God because our sin literally put him on that old rugged cross. Your sin and my sin, every single one of us here, every single one of us in this world, our sin put him there, our sin on that old rugged cross. See, this parable not only highlights the truth about God's character, it reveals the truth about the utter wickedness of the human heart. See, the, the tenants of the vineyard did not kill the owner's son in, in, in this kind of like spontaneous heat of the moment type of thing. You know, they made a calculated decision to kill him. That's what they did. You know, they, they, they thought that by killing the son, they could claim ownership of the vineyard. And, and that's what's so amazing about God's love. You know, I am a sinner by nature and by choice, but God still loves me in spite of my sin. Praise the Lord. You know, he loves you and, and, and me enough that he was willing to send his son to die for you and me. And, and even if you were the only sinner in this world, he still would have sent that just for you. How can you resist that kind of loving persistence? God is persistence. You know, years ago, in the early days of computers, you remember back in the early days of IBM? What year was that? Was that like that was like 1981, I think. How many of you ever had the Commodore 64 computer system? <laughs> Chad had it. Do you remember that Commodore? That, that was something else, I tell you. You know, I remember the first video game that I ever had. And like Dylan and, those, and some of these teenagers would probably go nuts over this, but I had what they called Pong. Remember Pong? It was just a dot that went across and you had these two little paddles and bing, 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 you know, you'd hit it back and forth. That was our beginnings of video games, but it would have been back in the days of IBM 1981 and the Commodore 64 was in 1982. Well, Years ago, during the early days of computers, the, the publishers of Time magazine were concerned about their declining circulation. So they designed a campaign to send out thousands upon thousands of letters, making an emotional appeal to their potential subscribers. In the past, 
such mailings had, had, done, had to be done manually at a, at a great cost of human resources. But IBM made a proposal to install a fully automated system that would print the letters, seal the envelopes, address them according to selected database, stamp them, and send them to the postal system without the letters ever being touched by a human hand. The huge system was installed with much fanfare and anticipation. However, that's an important word here, as Jaronelle and I both know. However, as it often is the case with computers, there was a glitch. (laughs) We know that, don't we? There was a glitch, and as a result, this poor sheep herder in Wyoming received 12,634 letters appealing to him to subscribe to Time Magazine. You know, he, he probably had never even heard of Time Magazine. The surprise shepherd who didn't ordinarily get much mail opened the mail bags, not bag, the mail bags, and started reading the letters. After opening a few dozen, he sent in the subscription order with this note. It said, I surrender. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of persistence is hard to resist. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know, so is the, the kind of persistence that drove Jesus to the cross. There he demonstrated just how far God would go to win your heart. Sadly, that's not the end of the parable, though. Here's the rest of the story. The story doesn't end with repenting and repentance and rejoicing. Rather, it ends with God's punishment. The fourth foundational aspect of God's nature is that God is a God of justice, folks. And it leads, sometimes it leads to his punishment. At the end of the story, Jesus asks this question in verse 15. He says, so they they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Then notice what the question is. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What will he do to them? And before the listeners had a chance to even respond, he answers his own question in verse 16 there. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. He will come and destroy those vine growers and he will give that vineyard to others. That's what he will do. Now, this part of the parable, as with the rest of it, first applied to Israel. They were were talking about Israel there. These religious leaders rejected Jesus and, and they plotted his death. And because of their actions, God ended his covenant with Israel and allowed the Roman army to march on Jerusalem. And if you remember, it was in AD 70 when Titus, not the Titus who who is part of the book of Titus, Titus and, and the Roman army marched on Jerusalem and they destroyed the whole place. They tore down the temple. They crushed the people that were there. You know, the once holy temple, the city itself, and everything that was inside of it was destroyed. But with Jesus' death, God began a new covenant 
open to anyone who would believe, who would accept, and who would obey the, his son. Thus, this prophetic parable was fulfilled. Of course, the punishment of the Jews who rejected Jesus points us towards an even more apocalyptic type of punishment looming on the horizon. You know, if you remember last week and earlier in this message, I mentioned to you 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says that the Lord is slow in keeping his promise. As uh, uh, the, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He is patient with you. Let me say it again. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Wow. Notice in the middle of that verse, Peter says, God is being patient with you. We cannot, however, overlook the verse that follows. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, or chapter chapter 3, verse 10, it says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It says the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You know, God's love and patience are infinite, but so is his holiness. So is his justice. He simply cannot allow evil to continue forever. He can't allow that. And who would want him to allow that? And so there will be a day, sooner or later, when the king returns and destroys those who have rejected his son. And Peter uses very strong terms when he says this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. He says, They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. I don't want to be a part of that. Jaronel this past week gave me an illustration from Charles Spurgeon that I think is so appropriate. Thank you. In answering a student's question, will the heathen who have not heard the gospel be saved? This is what he said. Thus, it is more a question with me whether we who have the gospel and fail to give it to those who have not can be saved. That's what Spurgeon said. We talked about this on Wednesday night in our Bible study. Here's how Spurgeon responded. He said, oh, my my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the, in the, the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. The question that I guess I have to say is, how important are lost sinners to you? How important are lost sinners to each one of us? Because remember, we were lost sinners at one time. And judgment day is coming. So what are you going to do about it?
Paul Harvey had this little segment. It's called For What It's Worth Department. Once heard of a great escape. Gary Tyndall, Gary Tyndall was his name, was in a California court charged with robbery. He asked and received from Judge Armando Rodriguez permission to go to the bathroom. While the bathroom door was guarded, Mr. Tyndall climbed onto the plumbing and opened a panel in the ceiling. And sure enough, it was a drop ceiling with a space in it. So he climbed up into the crawl space and he headed south. <laughs> he had gone 30 some feet when all of a sudden the ceiling panels broke from under him and dropped him onto the floor right back into the center of Judge Rodriguez's courtroom. He didn't get too far. I want to just say this. You know, it's difficult to escape man's judgment. It's impossible to escape God's judgment. And like I said just a minute ago, judgment day is coming. There's no escaping it for, for any of us. And, and there is no denying it for any of us. But thank God that he warns us ahead of time and not only that, he, he, he has prepared a, a way for us. One way, not multiple ways, one way for us to stand on the day of judgment. And that is to stand right by the side of Jesus, who is going to answer for us on that day. Warning labels can be good, can't they, folks? You know, warning labels, like, like warnings not to drive with the sunshade in place or using a Dremel tool uh, for a, an in-home dentistry drill, you know, they seem obvious and unnecessary. But all of us need to seriously consider Jesus' warning. The earth and everything in it is God's property, including you and me. And God is patiently waiting for us to figure all that out. He sent his son to show us how far he would go to win our hearts. But if we continue to reject his persistent love and his ownership over our lives, punishment is waiting and punishment is coming. And I don't like to be the bearer of bad news. We don't like to talk about those things, but not talking about them isn't going to take them away. And as believers, how important is it to us that we share the way of this punishment, the way out of this punishment to other folks who have not yet believed, who have not yet received the gospel message? I think it's vitally important. I think that that's the reason why we're here. Maybe you've been holding back from God. Maybe you haven't been ready to give your life. And, and I would almost state my life upon this that most of you in this room have probably given your life over to the Lord and you probably have a good relationship with him. But maybe you haven't. Maybe, some, there, maybe there's someone here who haven't been ready to give their life over or your soul or your all. But when you consider what God has given you, his patience, 
his persistence, that, that persistent love that is so amazing and so divine, he demands nothing less from us. And if you have been faithful to all this, then what are you doing about it? If you're on the other side of that and you have been faithful, what are you doing about it? Are you sharing it with others? Do you expect that Bob or, or Jerry or Chet should be the only ones doing that? Because we're, we're supposed to be your leaders. We're your elders. Here's the thing, though, folks. And I hope that you'll thank me for this so that you will know the warning ahead of time so that you don't show up unexpected and like, what? I didn't know about this. We all have to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment to give an account as to, to give an account to Jesus as to what we have said or done. Matthew chapter 12 says this, verse 36 and 37, but I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And if you were in Bible study on Wednesday night, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we all, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's what he tells us. My thought is this. May our account be exciting and wonderful news. And please remember what the Apostle Peter said to us in 2 Peter 3.9 there. God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God's desire for you is. Not the punishment, but the repentance and the joy of his kingdom. That's what God's desire is. Is that what your desire is? I sure hope so. God loves you, and he doesn't wish that anyone should um, perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so my prayer is this, is that we would desire the same thing that God desires. Amen? This morning, as we have our time um, to close and the band's heading up here to to share and um, the last song. We have the opportunity. We don't just have the opportunity every Lord's Day, every Sunday. We have the opportunity every day of our lives if we need to, to repent of our sins, to rededicate our lives, you know, and there's nothing wrong every day to rededicate your life to the Lord. But this isn't a game that we're playing. It is not a game. This is, this is real stuff. This is true stuff. And your eternal destiny and my eternal destiny really lays heavy on this. And I don't have any question that many of you, if not all of you here, will probably go to heaven because you've given your life over to the Jesus. But what about those people that you know that don't know Christ? What about them? You know, we can't force them to come to church. We can't force them to accept Jesus. But our job isn't to force them. Our job is to tell them about the good news. 
So how important are unsaved people to us? That's really important for us to to answer that question. And then once we answer that question, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? Look at how many empty seats are in here. They could be filled. But they're not going to be filled until we take seriously what God has called us here to do. And that's not, I'm not laying any kind of guilt on you. I'm just telling you, this is what we're supposed to be about. Are we going to do what God has called us here to do? And only each one of us individually can answer that.